You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. So this week is, uh, this past Friday was Valentine's Day. And I realized for, for many, that, that creates different emotions. Uh, for some people, they love it because, you know, they get cards or candy. It's a special couples thing. And I know for, for a lot of single people, they hate it because it's a reminder to them of, of what they wish they had but don't. And, you know, and my, my son, even though he um, is engaged, he, just, he thinks it's just this horrific thing that was created by Hallmark and just wants nothing to do with it, much to the dismay of his fiance. Um, but re- regardless, I was writing out my Valentine's Day card last week, and I found myself feeling very nostalgic. You know, for, you know, Bets and I have been, you know, married, come, what's this going to be, 37 years? Good night. So, <laughs> I just can't count that high is what happened. So, um, you know, I find myself reflecting on the years and the different experiences. I'm getting really nostalgic about our life together and just my incredible appreciation uh, f- for who I've spent the last 37 years with and, uh, just a, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, but I've also realized that there's other milestones or situations in life besides holidays that cause us to reflect and to think about life. And I know for those who have kids who have graduated from high school, that's a big marker event in life. Or they're going off to college and what that does to change the dynamics of the family. And, and we, it causes, those certain things cause us to reflect back and to think of where we've come from and how we got here. And and I know uh, I just mentioned our, our oldest uh, is, son is getting married uh, in April, and they've asked me to do the wedding, which I just think is really cool. I'm really excited by that. And so as I've been thinking about, in it, all my weddings, I have about 10 minutes, I have a talk. And I actually said, I said, listen, I'm going to talk to you guys. We'll let everyone else listen, but this is for you. And I've got a 10 minute, usually about a 10, 8 to 10 minute talk. And so I've been thinking about what am I going to say? Usually it's about life, and it's kind of a broader thing, but how do I make it meaningful and relevant to them? And there's a part of me thinking about how, all the ways I can embarrass him with stories. Um, but more often than that, what I'm thinking about is oh, how many ways, in so many ways, I'm proud of him and who he's become as a man and, and all these things. And so I find myself just reflecting. And what I've discovered, however, and talk with people, that probably the greatest time of reflection comes at the end of life when we know that we don't have much time left and we start thinking about and reflecting and we tend to see things for what they were. Most of the conflicts we had, which were really big deals at the time, we realized, why did I waste so much time and energy with that? And we appreciate the relationships we had and the people who invested in our lives and the people that we, whose lives we invested in. And, and, but we find ourselves just really thinking about and valuing people in our past. This idea of reflecting and valuing people and thinking about them is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in the book of, in the book of Philippians. It's a letter. The book of Philippians is actually a letter that he wrote to a group that was in Philippi, uh, which is in present-day uh, Greece. And um, so this week and next week, we'll be looking at a couple passages out of Philippians. But the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, is actually in prison. He's in Rome. He knows the end is near. And he doesn't have much time left. And he writes this letter to a bunch of Gentile Christ followers in Philippi. So these were not Jewish believers. These were Gentile believers. 
And he's writing to them as if a parent might write to their children. Hey, I know I'm not going to be here long, but here's what I want you to remember. Here's what I want you to think about. And he's, he's, he's writing as if that. Now, let me give you a little context as well. Philippi is, if we go to Acts chapter 16, we find Paul going for the very first time to Philippi, his second missionary journey. Paul went to three, three different trips. His second one, he was actually standing, they were actually in Turkey. And if you remember the passage, I think in 16, they didn't know where to go. And uh, they, they were really confused as to which to go next. That night, Paul had a dream. And in a dream, there's a man from Macedonia, which is present-day Greece in that area there. In his dream, the man said, hey, come on over to us and help us here. So that's how Paul gets to Macedonia. That's how he gets to Philippi, is from a dream. And so we know, also know this from reading in this Acts chapter 16, that the first convert in, in Philippi is a woman. Her name is Lydia. And that... Um, women played a prominent role in that church. As other Christ followers came along and, and became part of the group there, women played a very prominent role within the church in, Phil, in Philippi. Philippi is also where Paul and Silas, where, there, where they were walking through teaching, and for days there was this young girl following them who was demon-possessed, but she was a fortune teller. So her boss or owner would, would basically sell her to tell people's fortunes for a price. And so she was following Paul and, and just annoying him by saying, hey, you listen to this guy, he's from God. And, and he was doing, she was doing this day after day and Paul said, enough of this. And he turned around and he cast the demon out of her. Which the guy who owned her was furious because that's his source of income. And all of a sudden that's gone. And so he has Paul thrown into jail. Paul and Silas thrown into jail for creating upheaval. And that night an earthquake comes. And if you remember the story, earthquake and all the rattle, everything rattles and all the chains fall off, not just Paul and Silas, but all the prisoners. And all the doors open up and the cells and the, the, the guard runs in thinking everyone's escaped, which means his life was about, he was going to get killed because he's responsible. And Paul says, wait, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And because of that instance, the jailer and his family, his whole household come to know Jesus. This is Philippi. So when Paul's writing to the Philippians church, when you're reading the book of Philippians, this is who he's writing to. It's this group of people. And these are the experiences that they've shared together over the years. Paul's letter to the Philippians is not like his other letters. Like when he wrote to Corinthians, he's talking, all right, those of you who are doing this, stop it. And he's identifying very specific problems that are going on in that particular group. And he's telling them, you know, how to behave, what to do, and trying to correct the situations that are happening there. Listen to his words, however, in Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Honestly, personally, I think, I think Philippi, the group in Philippi, was Paul's favorite. I think when he looked at all his various groups and churches, just given the tone of his letter and what he's saying, I think this was the group that he really, really, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but I think this was Paul's favorite. I think this is the group that he really connected with which gives really sig strong significance to the passage that we're going to read here in, in, in Philippians chapter 2. 
So if you want to follow along in the screens, I'll read it. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if in any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, of God the Father. Um, Before we move this, one little note here, verse 10. Uh, Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Under the earth can be a little confusing. Back in that time in history, antiquity, back in the day, um, reality had three levels. All the good stuff was in the heavens above. Humans were on earth. All the bad stuff, evil, was under the earth, was the concept. So what he's saying here is every knee should bow in heaven, all the angelic beings on earth, all humans, and under the earth, even demons. Everything, everything that exists should be bow to the name of Jesus and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word and I, I thank you for this incredible letter from Paul that uh, it's a very personal and, and in some ways it's even almost intimate but yet, Lord God, we get to see it. We get to read it and be a part of it and experience it. And So Lord, help us take to heart what Paul is sharing with this group, a group that he loves so deeply that we might learn ourselves the things that matter most um, for us here at Grace Covenant Statesville. Uh, So Lord, we commit the rest of this time to you and ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to us, uh, to our minds as well as our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So in all of my pastoral ministry years, which as we've discovered are many, um, I've probably studied literally hundreds of churches read about them, study them, know the stories, what, what happened, their accounts. And, I mean, and, and so um, I remember for, during my, one of my seminary days, uh, I was a teaching assistant for a professor. The, the final project of the course was you had to give a 10-year analysis of a church. So you had to take a 10-year period, what happened during that 10 years, good, bad, indifferent, and assess what happened. So there's like 75 students in this class. I got to grade all those papers. Um, and so... I loved it because this, I really, I'm, I'm just wired differently, I guess, than a lot of pastors. I enjoy that stuff. Um, the, all the things that happen there, just the things that are interesting. Here's what I've come to learn. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the number one challenge all ch- churches face is relational conflict. It's not theology differences. It's not some of the things that happen. It's relational conflict is, seems to be the biggest challenge. Pastors with pastors. You've got staff that have personality conflicts that don't get along. Or you might have pastors and other leaders and 
people and, and leaders themselves and people. And it just, it just, you realize that you've got the potential for so much conflict because we're all different. We have different personalities, different expectations, different needs, and you put them all together and it's just a recipe for disaster. I've always said that the fact that the church of Jesus did still exists today is just evidence of God's grace. Really, it's just, it's amazing what could happen when you put people together. Here's what I've also discovered. The more often than not, that the conflict that is at root within that particular church is based, is, is based on misunderstanding or unmet expectations. So it's not anything that someone was really overtly bad or evil or did something really bad. It was just they misunderstood. Someone got their feelings hurt, and it created all kinds of issues. Um, I recently was talking with a, a pastor friend, and he was telling me uh, of a, uh, something that was happening within their church. Um, they had a, a, a new leader of a woman's group. Uh, she was younger, and so she was kind of brought in to, to be the leader of the group. Well, a, an older woman had already been scheduled to teach that particular group for the next few sessions, and, um, which was fine. The, new, the younger leader was, this is great. There's not a problem there. But because she didn't know who this person was and she was curious, she said, can you give me an outline of what you plan to do the next two weeks? I'd just like, like to see what, what you got planned. This older woman, the teacher, was incredibly offended. Um, how dare she ask me to see this? Doesn't she trust me? I've been teaching for, t- for 20, 30 years. Why? Who is she to ask me to give her an outline? What does she think she is? Who does she think she is? And why would she? I mean, just blew it up all out of proportion. And all this woman just says, hey, I'm just curious. I, you know, I'd like to know what you're doing. And she wasn't asking her to submit it for her approval. She just wanted to see it. But this woman was so offended, and even after multiple sit-down conversations, her and her husband ended up leaving the church, all because of how, what she perceived as a personal slight. Relational conflict can be a very, very big challenge in a church. Here's the irony, though. Relationships are one of God's greatest gifts to us. I mean, think about some of the things that matter most in your life. They're relationships. They are an incredible gift for us. And yet relationships can also present us with some of our greatest challenges. So the one thing that can bring us the most joy can also be the thing that brings us the most pain. In the passage we just read, Paul, in what was probably his last communication with this group, he was literally pleading with the Philippian people to be one in spirit and purpose. That's ultimately what he was saying. It actually it comes up in verse 4. Or, um, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I think it was verse 4. Be one in purpose and one in spirit. That's really all he is asking. Everything else was either prelude to it or was kind of support that. But that's actually the hub of what he was asking them. But here's what's interesting. He could have just said this. Hey, you know, as my last wish, my dying wish, I want you to be one in spirit. Just, just make this case. Just, hey, I want you to be one in spirit. But that's not what he says, is it? Instead, what he said, he starts off with, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. If, if you have, what's Paul doing? What he's doing here, he's actually creating a sense of obligation. If this, then that. If this is true, then this is what you should be doing. 
And so Paul is creating a sense of obligation on the part of, of the Philippian people by framing it that way. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, then be one in spirit and purpose. It would be an appropriate statement to say that. But Paul doesn't just say that either, does he? He actually takes it a step further. He doesn't just give us one, if this is true, then that should happen. He gives us four of them. Four statements. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you felt any comfort from his love, if you've received any benefit from fellowship with the Spirit, if you felt any tenderness and compassion with Christ. He's trying to make a point here, isn't he? He's leaving very little room for them to misunderstand this. If, if any of these are true, then make me happy by being one in spirit and purpose. This is a big deal for Paul. He wanted to make sure that the people in Philippi didn't miss it. So what's the point Paul's trying to make then? What's my first point? If you have your worship guide, if you have the outline, the first thing I think, the point we're trying to, or that Paul was trying to make is our relationship with Jesus should affect our relationship with others. Our relationship with Jesus should affect our relationship with others. Jesus has done so much for us. Our lives should be a reflection of that love. In fact, our, God's love for us should be a guide for how we love others. Not only are we to reflect Christ's love to others, but our relationship with Jesus should affect us when the love of Christ is not returned back to us in the way we think it should. So, yes, we should love others, but sometimes it's not reciprocated back to us the way we want it to be. So, so our relationship with Jesus should also affect that dynamic. God's forgiveness to us should serve as our guide in forgiving others. Sometimes we just need to, when it, when it comes back a different way, sometimes we just need to let it go and forgive. Remember, that the love of Jesus is unconditional. There's no conditions on it. And yet, for the love of Christ to flow through us, Paul tells us that certain things must stop. Number two, the second thing he mentions is that selfish ambitions should not direct our motives and behaviors towards others. Verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So something to remember here that although Philippi was in Greece, it was, it was under Roman rule. Um, Philippi was the signature city in that region. It was like if someone was saying, hey, I'm going to the northeast in the United States, I'm visiting from outside the country, say, I'm going to go to the northeast in the U.S., you would think North New York City would be one of the places they, may, they would go. Or if they say, hey, I'm going to the west coast, of the United States, well, Los Angeles or San Francisco, Seattle. You, so, there, so within that region of the, of the world, Philippi was the city. It was actually a, a colony of Rome. So it wasn't just occupied territory. It was actually a colony of Rome. It was, it was different than, than, than and we don't really have a comparison. The, the biggest thing I, as I thought about this, it would be almost as if you have to go back in the day when, when uh, the Great Britain had... Um, colonies all over the world. And so even though if you were a British citizen and you went to India, there were certain things. You had, you know, English rule of law, you had currency. So there's things that were there that were common to what you had back at home, even though it was a different country. That's the closest I could get to what was happening here in Philippi to help us understand that distinction. 
One historian um, wrote this. He said that, that Philippi was a city inhabited predominantly by Romans. So even though it was in the Greece, even the area, it, was, it, was, it had been um, occupied primarily by Romans. One historian said this. He said, the inhabitants were a people proud of their city, proud of their ties with Rome, proud to, to observe Roman customs and obey Roman laws, and proud to be Roman citizens. Philippi was a reproduction of Rome. So why is this relevant? We know that the status and power were paramount in Roman society. Titles were a big deal. If you had a title, you had prominence, you had authority, you had, you were, you had status, you were in. Titles were a big deal. In fact, the word that's translated in here, it talks about selfish ambition. Paul says, don't have selfish ambition. Actually suggests this concept of rivalry. Don't be in competition with one another. You're not to be competing with your fellow Christ followers for status and prestige and power within your group. That's not what we're to be about. Paul was pleading with a bunch of Romans to not act like Romans. Because he knew that a person could not be a follower of Jesus and still hold on to their selfish ambitions and pride. We know that the root of selfish ambition is excessive self-love. Self-love that disregards the rights and the feelings of others. Everything about such a life is contrary to the ways of Jesus. And the same applies to us today as well. By nature, we are selfish people who too often expect to receive more from a relationship than what we are willing to give. As lived by Jesus, we're to be more concerned for others than for ourselves. So Paul in his letter, in his encouragement, said, all right, you need to stop b- being this way. So don't, or if, don't even go down that path. So here are things we don't, he doesn't want them to do. But he also said there's things you need to be doing. So he also gives uh, the other side of that. And that's the third idea here that we want to talk about. Humility should define our opinion of ourselves and our attitude towards others. So selfish ambition and should not be a part of our lives but humility should. He concludes that verse in, in verses three and four, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word humility here is used, and it's, it's used in a context that's frequently used to describe the mentality of a slave. Okay, so it's not just being humble and, and self-deprecating. It's actually the humility here is, no, no, you're a slave. You have, you have no rights, no expectations. Um, but it's even worse than that, even almost in the sense that you're unfit, that you're, you are of no account. You're just a resource to be used, a tool to be used by your Lord and Master. So when it talks about be humble, that's the word that's being conveyed here. Which again... In this context, in this culture, talking to Romans who value status and thing, this is not a virtue that they're going to aspire to. This is not a virtue to be admired because this is so contrary to what it was to their culture. If Paul had stopped his comments here in verse 4, there's no way the Christ followers in Philippi would have accepted his words. There's no way because it was just too big of a gap between what their culture said they should be and do 
to what Paul was now asking them to be and do. But fortunately, Paul doesn't stop with verse 4. Paul then goes on to verse 5, and he attaches this idea of humility, of a slave, if you will, he attaches it to the life and the actions of Jesus. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in, every na- in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we see in Jesus is that true humility is not about putting ourselves down. It's about lifting others up. And when Paul contrasts the sea of humility with Jesus, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. It's not about me being worthless. It's about me thinking about others as being better because that's what Jesus did. And that brings me to the last observation about this passage. Christ's thoughts about relationships should define the way we think about relationships. You know, when Paul wrote this passage, some have wondered if he had in mind the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, even though Paul wasn't there, he wasn't one of the original 12, he came on the scene after the fact, I got to believe that this story of washing the feet was known to Paul. Imagine this is just part of things that have been passed on. And so I'm sure he was aware of it. And we don't, he doesn't reference that specifically. But let me read for you that passage in John chapter 13 and see if you can't see the connection that Paul might be making. <clears throat> it was just before the Passover, Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That evening, the meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drawing them with a towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master." nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Sounds very much like what Paul was trying to convey to the group in Philippi. This one episode shows us a few things about Jesus. Jesus was selfless in his thinking. He didn't get offended. He wasn't concerned about the... He was concerned about the feelings of others more so than his own. We also know from Jesus that he was a servant in his thinking. He wasn't concerned about status or reputation. He was sacrificial in his thinking. He did what needed to be done. 
He didn't wait for someone to ask, nor did he get offended if someone didn't ask. He was sacrificial in his thinking. The greatest lesson to be learned from Jesus is that he consistently thought of others more than himself. As Christ followers of Grace Covenant Statesville, we are called to do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this letter from Paul and the encouragement, uh, the exhortation uh, that he gives us, such the strength of how powerful he felt this, these emotions about our need to love one another. Uh, for Paul was certainly aware of what might happen when people disagree, their feelings get hurt, or something happens that they weren't expecting and it bothers them and they let it grow and they let them fester. And uh, Father, that Paul was really concerned that that didn't happen with, with his group in Philippi. He knew he wouldn't be able to go visit them again and that he probably would never see them again. And so this was, these were his last words. These are the things that were mattering most to him at this point in time. Father, may we take that to heart for us here. May we be a people that are willing and, and, and enjoy sharing life together. Um, but Lord, recognizing that not everything is going to be fun, not everything is going to be good and joyful, and, and, but sometimes there's going to be things that happen that confuse us, that might hurt our feelings. And sometimes it's a comment, sometimes, sometimes it's even the lack of a comment, the fact that we might feel ignored or, or left, looked over. Or, God, I don't know. There's so many things that can cause us to, our emotions to go awry. Father, help us to recognize that for what it is. Lord, sometimes it's just our own insecurities at work. And sometimes, Lord, it's just a, a, the, the lie of the enemy wanting to deceive us and to cause division amongst us. So, Lord, I thank you for, the, for what we have happening here in Statesville and for what we see happening amongst us and just rejoice in your goodness. And pray, Lord, that Paul's letter to the Philippians is, is a warning to us as well to be on guard and to be careful, and to manage well the relationships we have. So, Lord, it's towards these ends and for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I, uh, I completely get Paul's thinking about the church in Philippi. Honestly, it's, it's the same way I feel about all of you. I'm not leaving. I'm going to be here next week, but these are my last words. But I get what he's trying to say these things matter more so than anything else. Be proactive in your relationships. If you even have a hint of, hmm, I wonder if, if are we, to go to someone and say, are we okay? Just that simple question, are we okay? Can we, it's, can we just be proactive. Forgive, 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 forgive. Don't hold on to hurt. It doesn't do you any good. It certainly doesn't do them any, anything. And if, if you need to, go to someone and say, hey, can we talk? And I just say, hey, when this happened or when you said this, when that didn't happen, here's how it made me feel. And then give, give the Holy Spirit the opportunity for, for reconciliation to happen there. So be proactive. If you think you might have done something to hurt someone or a slight, be proactive going saying, hey, are we okay? I if it happens to you, forgive. And if you find it really difficult, then not just to get over, then, then be proactive and say, hey, can we talk? When we can do those things, it's amazing what God can do amongst people. 
when they're committed not just to him, but to one another as well. So, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again here. Anytime you've had someone bothers you or hurts you or there's an offense, two assumptions you, that are, you need to make, two assumptions. Assume positive intent. Assume they tried to do the right thing, they just made a mistake. Don't assign motive. That gets all messed up when you do that. Assume positive intent. Assume you don't have all the information. Assume there's more to the story that goes on with what you're aware about. If you go into a conversation with those two assumptions, almost inevitably, in every situation, in every time, in every case, it'll end up well. Assume positive intent. Assume you have more, you, you need more information. Ask questions. And if we can manage relationships with that in mind, I think we'll be just fine. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.